The reading for today is Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Um, Good morning. My name is Frank. If you're new to Redemption Arcadia, I'm the lead pastor here and... uh, Um, you'll see a lot of me if you end up uh, hanging out here. So uh, I I have some stuff that I need to work through before we get into that text uh, of Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We are starting the Gospel of Mark today. Very exciting. This is kind of a, uh, uh, it's interesting how Mark starts his Gospel by saying the beginning of the Gospel, the beginning. Uh, This is a day of beginnings for a lot of, uh, of redemption as well. We have the beginning of Peoria, which is exciting. Uh, We have the beginning of, of, um, uh, uh, people's lives in Christ because we've had already had some baptisms and we're going to have uh, at least another baptism, maybe more this, this service. Uh, uh, several of the other congregations are also doing baptisms this morning. We're beginning the Gospel of Mark, which is really important. We're going to be spending about the next year in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I do want to say something else about Peoria, though. Uh, we are the, the now officially Arcadia because Peoria was planted out of Arcadia. We are now the proud parents of a bouncing baby Peoria redemption, which is exciting. And uh, Sean Myers is out there. And I just, uh, th- their service was at, I don't know, 930. I couldn't, re- I think it was at actually at 930. They started, I did text him this morning and I said, you know, you, don't, you guys don't have a second service, so you can preach as long as you want, which I think he would think is good news. Um, he never said anything back. But I did just get a text from him after the service. They had 240 adults at their launch service, which is really exciting, 50 children. He did say, however, you need to understand kind of the numbers and also kind of maybe how that's affecting Arcadia. 50 people from Arcadia went with the Peoria plant to go there permanently, and then about another 40 of of, uh, people from Arcadia were there today as well to just be there to help him and support him and volunteer and kind of make sure that everything got pulled off correctly. And as a matter of fact, we had three of our elders and their wives and families were, were uh, from Arcadia were out there today. But they all said it was a great day. Uh, Sean, of course, if, if you've ever heard Sean preach, it was awesome as usual. And we are off to a really great start in Peoria. And that's very exciting. And so um, we're glad for that. We're going we're gonna to do... Um, more baptisms again in this service. Also, I promised in January that I would give you a financial update, and so we are prepared to do that. We have audited figures in. And so for uh, this uh, congregation, Arcadia specifically, this is what uh, the year 2014 looked like for us. We ended up having a just an absolutely marvelous December. We were kind of even going into December, which is always a good place to be at the end of the year. And we had a, just a rip-roaring December. We ended up uh, with record revenues for Arcadia in our uh, five-and-a-half-year history of almost $800,000. Our expenses were a little bit over budget. Nevertheless, less than we took in, about 700000 And so our net was about $89,000. So thank you very much. We are grateful uh, for your generosity, and we understand the importance of our stewardship in, in uh, what you've entrusted us with. Um, now, I do, I do need to talk a little bit about that um, overage because a lot of people will ask about this. Wow, we've got 89000 extra dollars. Does that mean that we don't have to give for the next three months? And the answer to that would be no. It's not a trick question. Okay, so anyway, come on. We can kind of joke about this. So um, here's the deal. 
you know, and I'm going to give you a property update in just a minute as well. You know, as well as I do, that not every Redemption Church owns its own property. Most of us are actually in lease situations like we are in Arcadia, and we're looking for property. And so when we get an overage like this, what we're doing is we're banking that money in order to help us when we do get into a position to either buy or lease or improve another property or this property here that we are currently in. And the way it works at Redemption is 70% of that overage goes right into our account, our separate account for Arcadia, and 30% of it goes into the big R um, account to help replenish cash reserves so that uh, Redemption, big R Redemption, can actually act as a bank for congregations like us that that need money that they can loan interest-free. And so it's a really good deal. So combined with the last three years' overages, we actually have about $130,000, $135,000 in that little account that we can use towards uh, something going forward. So that's really good news. We still have our regular expenses, and we still need revenue to be able to cover that lease here, expenses on this building, insurance, uh, salaries, all those things. But uh, uh, again, a very good year, a banner year, and we thank you for that. We appreciate that. Uh, God has been very, very uh, gracious w- with us. Uh, speaking of uh, re- Big R Redemption, here are the um, Big R Redemption numbers. So uh, this is all eight of the congregations now combined. We ended up with $7.5 million in revenue, expenses a uh, little under $7.2 million, and so we ended up with a net of all combined of almost $400,000. So we are in really good shape. Um, we're, we're a very strong entity. Uh, the banks tend to like us, and I think those are all good things and blessings from God. And, and so we should be rejoicing in that. Some of you are looking at me like, whatever, this is really good news. I'm telling you, it's, 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 it's okay to go, yay, okay? It's, it's, yay, thank you. That was one, all right, okay. So now, just like in the marketplace, we've got to wipe everything clean. Oh, we've got to start over. Here's the budget for Arcadia for 2015, okay? So 675 is our budgeted revenue. You look at that and you look at what we just did and you say, what's wrong with you? That doesn't seem very aggressive. Actually, that's extraordinarily aggressive considering the fact that we just planted Peoria. So we've, we've uh, taken some of the people out who are going to Peoria and in September we're going to be planting Redemption Scottsdale as well. Uh, but Neil and I, Neil is our uh, executive pastor over Big R Redemption. He uh, offices in Gilbert. Uh, he would, in the marketplace, he would be called the chief financial officer or the chief operating officer or both. Um, and he and I spent a lot of time working through this. I worked through the, uh, with the elders and the staff, and we, we believe that this is still a pretty, this is an aggressive budget, $675,000, but we also believe that we're certainly capable of doing that. Uh, expenses are budgeted a little bit less than last year as well, 600 and, almost 670000 and so we're looking for a net of $5,500. Um, th- we watch this stuff not only monthly as we get our monthly financials, but I, I kind of keep, tra- I have a way of kind of eyeballing and keeping track of this weekly as well, and so we're on top of this, and, and it's our prayer that we would be good stewards of everything that you so generously give to Redemption Church um, to be able to do what we do. So thank you very much. We are really grateful. And then the property update. Most of you know, <clears throat> if you don't, now you do know, uh, we are in this facility. Uh, we, at the end of our three-year lease, we signed a three-year lease uh, a while ago, and the end of that lease is coming up in September 2015. And so most of you know that we've been out looking and trying to figure out what to do, and also still talking to um, Memorial Presbyterian as to what to do. And uh, we've done a lot of different things, and I'm here to tell you that we can boil it down to three major points now in in this property update that I think will give us great clarity and be very, very helpful. Number one, we are still talking with Memorial, and it it is uh, our desire um, that we would be able to stay here. That's our primary desire, either in a lease situation or maybe at some point uh, where we could actually uh, buy and and, and, uh, do some things with the property. That is our desire, so we're still talking with them, so please be praying about that. Uh, But secondarily, we are still looking at other options. Last fall, we expanded, if you remember, if you were here, we expanded our search to include areas outside of uh, Arcadia and even Arcadia Light because we were beginning to think that maybe it it was time that God was moving us into another area that would be easier to get into. And we did that for a while, and we saw many viable options for us to move and become uh, redemption something else. Uh, but ultimately, as we looked at all these viable options, uh, the staff, especially Cody and myself and a couple of the elders, 
we really believe that God was impressing upon us that, that five and a half years ago, he gave us this foothold in Arcadia and that we should not give up this foothold in Arcadia unless it is absolutely, positively the only thing that we can possibly do. In other words, we have exhausted every last option in Arcadia. We are Redemption Arcadia, and we want to remain Redemption Arcadia. And so that's the second point. We are looking in Arcadia and Arcadia Light. You, you get the idea. Here, let me put it this way. We're not looking at any more venues north of Squaw Peak, okay? So that you can, you can rest assured we're not looking up there. The only way we'd end up somewhere up there is if every single door was closed here. But we believe that God is working to keep us, uh, us here. And so that would be point two and three. We're looking in Arcadia, and we will not leave the area unless we have absolutely no other choice. So still negotiating with Memorial, looking in Arcadia, won't leave Arcadia unless we have no other choice. That sums up what we are trying to do. And I want to remind you that um, we have a lot of people in the congregation who are uh, who have connections and networks in this area and they're keeping their, their, their ear to the ground and they're giving us good leads and they're helping us with all of these things and we really appreciate that. We're not averse to hearing input from, from people as well. Uh, we believe that ultimately it's not going to be necessarily uh, what we know but who we know that's going to help us to do this but ultimately that it's God's plan for us uh, to be here. I have had a couple of people come to me and say, wow, you're really placing a lot of faith in the idea that you're going to be able to stay in, a, in an area that's very tough in terms of real estate. It's almost like you're playing chicken with God. And I said, yeah, it's good, though, because God always wins when you play chicken with him. And so he'll win. He'll have his way in some way. And, and I'm good with that, and you should be good uh, with that as well. So that's all of our updates and stuff. If you have any additional questions regarding that, obviously we couldn't go in too deep on the financials. We've got... Uh, actual financial statements that get much more detailed. If you're interested in all that stuff, you can email me or email Neil Pitchell, and we can get you all set up with uh, answering all of your questions for you, okay? Very open about all of that stuff. So let me uh, pray, and we'll get into the Gospel of Mark. God, we do thank you for uh, your, your faithfulness and your grace and your generosity uh, with just another great year, not only at Arcadia, but also at Redemption, and we rejoice with Redemption Peoria today and Sean and Candace and their whole group out there as they plant. And it's just been amazing to watch and, and to be able to give us testimony as to your goodness and your greatness. And so we thank you for that. And now, God, we turn to the Gospel of Mark. And I pray that you would, you would speak through uh, your people who are going to proclaim this word, this truth, and this gospel. Whether that's me or Cody or David or... Tom or whoever else that's here to be able to proclaim it. I pray that you would speak your words through this and that you would open the hearts and minds of people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And we ask that in his name. Amen. Well, one of the interesting things in the last 20 or 30 years in biblical and theological scholarship, but more in biblical scholarship, has been the issue of Jesus. The issue of Jesus. I know it seems somewhat sterile to speak of Jesus that way for some of you, but it's true. You get a bunch of academics together and they start asking questions and a real person becomes an issue. At any rate, the issue that, that has become so hot in the last 20 or 30 years is what's known as the historical Jesus. Uh, did he really live? Uh, can, can, we, can we really believe what the Bible has to say about him? Did his resurrection really happen? Can we trust what Scripture presents as the truth about this man named Jesus. Uh, there's actually been a section in biblical studies now that's, that's been developed that you can become a scholar of the historical Jesus. That's how intense this has become, that you dedicate your life studying the historical Jesus, and you try to answer these questions. And Redemption Church has the position that we can answer all of those questions in one word, and that would be, yes, we can trust it. Yes, he was a real person. Yes, the Bible accounts of him are true. Yes, the resurrection really did happen. And so we want to help answer that question by working through one of those documents in the Bible that, that claims to speak the truth about who Jesus was, what his ministry was like, his, his death, and everything else about Jesus that's important to us, and that would be the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to spend the next uh, 12 or 13 months going 
kind of verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. It's a magnificent study. It's one of my, personally one of my favorite books in, in the Bible. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to take about 40 minutes to, first of all, take 10 minutes to maybe preview Mark, give you some background. Uh, in the past, I would have spent maybe 45 minutes doing that, an entire Sunday doing that. But um, with this class coming up on how to read the Bible, we'll give you just some things to whet your appetite in that regard. And then you can go deeper if you want on those things and interact with us and ask questions. But then after that 10 minutes, we'll get into the first 11 verses and unpack uh, the passage that Amy read for us this morning. So the Gospel of Mark is known uh, for being um, unique uh, over and against the other Gospels because of its brevity, its, its um, sense of urgency, how short it is. It's the shortest of all the Gospels, uh, the economy of words with which Mark uses. And some of you might say, now, wait a minute, already I have a historical problem. Why isn't it exactly the same as the other eyewitness accounts, the other Gospels? You need to understand that, that each Gospel is unique in, in the perspective of how it presents Jesus, but it's unified in who Jesus is and his theology. So ultimately, the biggest questions that we answer, they're all unified, but there is there are some uniqueness as to some of uh, the details, which helps us to have a more complete picture of who Jesus really is. And and Mark's gospel is the shortest of those gospels, and yet the way he writes it, uh, like I said, there's this sense of urgency with the way he writes it and an economy of words. In other words, it's the fastest moving of the Gospels. It's, it's, got, it's kind of the most exciting of the Gospels because it just keeps moving and moving. Mark uses the Greek word that we translate as immediately or at once or just then um, 41 times in the Gospel, way more than any other book in the New Testament. So there's this constant emphasis on action and he uses more present tense verbs than anybody else uh, in, in uh, the, the New Testament as well, which which uh, lets us know that there's constantly action and the sense of detail that he gives us even in the economy of words is very, very clear. You'll have a clear picture of who Jesus is working your way through the Gospel of Mark. And ultimately, the Gospel of Mark answers this one question, which is a big question. It, it It is the cosmic conflict. Who is Jesus? And you say, why is this a cosmic conflict? Why is this question, who is Jesus, a cosmic conflict? And we would answer by saying, because it's of cosmic importance. You might think you have an important decision to make about where you're going to live or what job you're going to take or where you're going to go to school or who you're going to marry or who your friends are going to be or whatever else. And those are important decisions, but they are not cosmically important. They're, 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 the entire uh, weight of your eternal life doesn't weigh on this question, who is Jesus? That's why it is cosmically important that you get this right and it is cosmically disastrous for you if you get this question wrong. Who is Jesus? And, and Mark specifically sets out to answer this question and create this cosmic conflict. And part of the reason that it's a cosmic conflict is because he's writing this within the context of the first century Roman Empire, sort of at the height of their power. So let me talk just a minute about the context in which Mark writes this in. Number one, it was a context of power. The Roman Empire had power. And that power was seated in, of course, Caesar, but also in his government, which was backed up then by the legions of their military. And so you never wanted to mess with Rome. And anybody who messed with Rome found out that it was going to be very difficult for them if they messed with Rome. And yet Mark comes along and says, as powerful as Rome is, the gospel is way more powerful than even Rome. The gospel is way more powerful than any worldly empire could ever be or ever has been. And second of all, you have this this context in which Caesar is not just the emperor and the leader of Rome and the government, but he is also considered to be a god. And they called him Lord, and not little L Lord, but big L Lord, meaning that he had this cosmic power. And you didn't want to mess specifically with Caesar either. And yet Mark comes along in this context and writes a gospel about the true Lord, the eternal Lord, the real Lord. Lord, the genuine Lord, and that would be Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And then, of course, there's the context of privilege and order. The Roman emperor, Empire had this context of privilege and order. Everything was really ordered in, in, in the Roman Empire. If you lived in the Roman Empire, whether you were a citizen or somebody else, if you lived in the Roman Empire, 
You knew exactly where you fit in the hierarchy of the Roman Empire. You knew your spot. You knew your position. You were in the pecking order. And if you were a Roman citizen, if you were a documented Roman citizen, you had great privilege in that order. You were much more highly privileged than most other people if you were a Roman citizen. If you read through the book of Acts, you know that on a couple of different occasions, Paul, who was a Jew, was also a Roman citizen. And a couple of times he played that card and he needed to play that card to be able to uh, help things happen and and he used his privilege to be able to get along so there's privilege and order in this this empire but mark comes along and he says the kingdom of god has greater privilege and greater order and here's the order and it's one of privilege that you and i through jesus christ we have been adopted as sons and daughters of god and we are co-heirs with jesus christ in in the reception of the new jerusalem and all the glory And so there's greater privilege and greater order even in the midst of of the gospel than Rome. And you think, and you'd be thinking correctly, then Paul writing this book uh, might have been a little bit controversial if it fell into the wrong hands. And the answer to that is yes, it's true. If this fell into particular Roman government uh, officials' hands or even Caesar's hands, they would look at this gospel pretty much as an act of sedition. And so it was risky even for Mark to write it, especially as he, as most scholars understand, he was writing to the people at the church in Rome as he wrote uh, this gospel. And so we ask then, well, who is Mark? Well, Mark's an interesting character in, in Scripture. Mark, if you, again, if you read through the book of Acts, you know that Mark is the same guy that the Apostle Paul had a real, real big blow-up over and with in, in the book of Acts. Uh, You look at chapter 13 of the book of Acts and Barnabas, the son of encouragement, comes to Paul and, and, and they get together and they say, hey, what do you say we go out on this missionary journey and, and tell people about Jesus and plant churches? Uh, gospel-centered jur- churches all around the Mediterranean. And they said, yes, that sounds like a good idea. And so they prayed and they blessed all the people that they sent out. And Mark was one of the people they sent out. Mark was related somehow to Barnabas. He was his cousin or his nephew. We're not sure which, but, but they went. And, and about halfway through this journey, we're not told why, but we are told that Mark kind of throws up his hands and says, I'm done, I'm, I'm heading back home. And so he leaves in the middle of this missionary journey. And nothing else is said about it until uh, two chapters later, Acts chapter 15, after the Jerusalem council. Again, uh, Paul and Barnabas get together and they say, hey, let's go out on another trip. Let's go to the churches that we planted and strengthen those brothers there. But then let's also go a little bit further and plant some more churches. And they said, yes, this is a good plan. And then Barnabas said, okay, I'll go get Mark and he can come with us. And what was Paul's response? Mark? He's not coming with us, man. That guy's a loser. Now, loser's not in the text, but I added that. But anyway, you get the idea. He's a, there's no way we're taking Mark. We can't, we can't count on Mark. He, he, he bailed on us last time, so we're not taking Mark. And, and Scripture tells us that a sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas, these two wonderful Christians. A sharp disagreement arose between these two guys. And Barnabas took Mark, and he went and evangelized in North Africa. And... and um, Uh, Paul got Silas and they went on this missionary journey that they had been planning to go to. So they went into the Mediterranean and even into a little bit into Europe. And so they split up. And so you can imagine though that even in this conflict, more area, more territory was covered for the gospel. But that was kind of the relationship that Mark and Paul had. It was not good until you get to the last letters that Paul writes in the New Testament and at the end of one of those letters, I believe at 2 Corinthians, he's sending his greetings and he's saying, oh, by the way, would you please send for Mark and ask him to come to me because he would be really helpful to me here. And so somewhere along the line, we're not sure how or why, but somewhere along the line, Paul set aside his negative thoughts about Mark and, and was reconciled with him and even felt that he was beneficial. So this is this, is this guy, uh, Mark. Mark was also very close to Peter. Some people believe that they were related in some way. And most scholars will tell you that Mark is actually, what he's doing is he's essentially recording Peter's eyewitness account of his life with Jesus uh, as part of the disciples, part of the apostles, part uh, part of the team. So some people would say, well, this is really Peter's gospel. And that's okay. And that's interesting. Scholars say that there's hardly any material in Mark that doesn't have Peter somewhere involved. 
uh, in it. Uh, Mark's mother's house was an interesting house mentioned a couple of times in Scripture as well, including in chapter 12 of Acts when Peter was thrown into jail and he was going to be executed the next day. And so the church gathered at Mark's mother's house and they were praying for Peter's release that God would do something miraculous and get Peter out of there and keep him from being executed so that he could continue his work in the church. And they're praying and they're praying and they're praying. And they didn't realize this, but at that time, the angels of, of the Lord, they go to the, 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 the prison where Peter is and they, they somehow break him out. And so Peter goes right to Mark's mother's house where the church is praying for his release and he knocks on the door and a servant woman named Rhoda goes up to the door and she says, who is it? And he says, it's me, Peter. And she leaves him standing out there. A fugitive from the law leaves him standing out there and runs back in and tells everybody who's praying for Peter's release, hey, y'all, guess what? Peter's out there standing on the porch. And their reaction was, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. (laughs) Now think about that. They're praying for Peter's release. Peter gets released. Rhoda reports this to them and they say, "Uh, we don't really think God's going to answer this prayer. You ever prayed like that? Isn't it interesting that even when we don't pray with power, God supplies the power sometimes? And I think that sometimes that entreats us or it should entreat us to start praying with power, praying with faithfulness, praying with confidence that he's going to come answer in his way, but he's going to always answer our prayers. So that's Peter's mother's house. Another little nugget that I just found recently, um, believe it or not, some of the uh, uh, early church fathers uh, said that Mark had a nickname and it was Stubby Fingers. (laughs) So we're essentially studying the gospel of Stubby Fingers, okay? And nobody knows exactly why they call them Stubby Fingers. Did he have really short fingers? We don't know. Some guys even said, I think it's because his personality was a little short and stubby, maybe. But at any rate, if you hear me refer to him as stubby fingers, you know why. And this gospel is probably the earliest of the gospels written sometime in the 60s. And it was written, again, mostly to Romans who had a very small understanding of Jewish law, the Hebrew Bible, and Jewish customs and traditions. And so one of the things that Mark was trying to do was to sort of educate them on the importance of of the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. Craig Evans, who is... um, probably the greatest Mark scholar alive today, uh, he makes the argument that in a, in a literary way, the literary style of Mark is very similar to, a, to an ancient Greek tragedy, that it has the same kind of action and, and it ends in the same way that most Greek tragedies do, which I think is interesting. And obviously, the Gospel of Mark is written with go- the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, as the focal point. Um, but, but Mark is very clear about making sure that we understand that the gospel is not just for salvation, but it's also for sanctification and discipleship. That, that the gospel is for all of life and not just for that beginning entrance into the kingdom of God, claiming that you know Jesus, that it's going to be something that, that uh, is part of your life forever and ever and ever. And so as we start to dig into the text today, we see that the big idea of today's text, these first 11 verses, is that God's promises will be fulfilled and that this is the beginning of the fulfillment of his promises. And so verse 1 says, in the be- uh, I'm sorry, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we look at that and we say, probably need to to define some terms there, and so we will. First of all, gospel. The word gospel, the Greek word for gospel, we we constantly say it's good news, but literally if you study the word in the context, what you find out is that it's literally it means news that brings great joy. News that brings great joy. And, And it's important that it's news. It's not advice or suggestions. This is really important to understand. Um, news is rooted in the truth of a, of a real historical event that happened. This truth is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that this really happened, and that's why we can have joy about this news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, again, I'll reference the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is appearing in a, in a court uh, in Jerusalem before Agrippa and Festus, 
and he's arguing with them about the, the truth of the resurrection. And at one point, Festus is going, this is goofy talk. And, and he looks right at Agrippa and he says, Agrippa, you know this is true. You know that this is a fact because none of this happened in a corner. None of this happened in a closet. There wasn't a veil over any of this. This happened out in the open, out in the public. There were 500 witnesses. Agrippa, tell him, you know that this is a true event. And so this good news is rooted in the fact of Jesus' resurrection. It is not advice and suggestions. Mark does not say the beginning of the good advice and good suggestions of Jesus. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our, our second word that we need to, to, we need to look at. So what is the Christ? Well, it's, it's not his name. It's his title. I, when I first became a Christian, I just thought that was his last name, Jesus Christ, you know? If you're in first century, you go to Jerusalem, you look in a phone book, you look up Christ, you see Jesus, and there you go to his address. No, it's not his name, it's his title. And that title literally means anointed royal one. Anointed royal one. So in other words, he's the one that's been chosen for the task of saving his people. That's the anointing. But that royal one also reminds us that he's not just the savior, he's not just the redeemer, but he is also the king. And the kingdom of God is his. And that the kingdom of God that we now are a part of is not just a place and a group of people and a thing, but rather it is a person. And it is the person of Jesus Christ who is the king. And Mark continues to make this point that he's the king, the creator, the author of everything throughout his entire gospel. And this is very, very important. And, and, and the thing that separates this from every other religion, and this is really important, the thing that separates the gospel from every other religion and what makes Jesus the king is the fact that every other religion is essentially defined by you and I as human beings somehow trying to work our way to God. That somehow we have to become good enough. That we have a moral code. Or, or we have a cause. Or, or, or even we have an attitude of indifference that we think will somehow lead us to that better life that we're seeking. But all of us inherently do this because we all know that there's something bigger and better out there. And so we're all trying to work our way up to God. And that is, that is the problem with every other religion and worldview and philosophy is that it's about us somehow being good enough for God. But the gospel with Jesus as the king is the only one where God, through his son, the king, Jesus Christ, reaches down to us and having done nothing to merit his favor, he pulls us up to him and says, I'm gonna save you simply because I love you. I'm gonna save you right where you are. He doesn't leave us where we are, but I'm gonna save you right. So it's the only one where God comes down to us and saves us. That's a big difference, and that makes it the good news, and the reason it can happen that way is because Jesus is the king. And then finally, he's also the son of God, that Jesus was fathered by the Father through the Holy Spirit in Mary. There's your trinity, by the way, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And some of us struggle with this, but essentially what the Bible teaches is that Jesus was fully man and fully God at the same time. He wasn't half and half, he wasn't sometimes manifesting himself as God and sometimes manifesting himself as a human being, but he's fully God and fully man. And it's that heavenly math that confuses a lot of people. One plus one equals one, but that's essentially what it is. And we need to recognize him that, that he is a man, but he's also fully God. And then finally, of great import, Mark says that this is the beginning of the gospel. And this is a specific reference to the Old Testament promises. He's saying, look, look back to the beginning. We're from the very beginning. God is promising that he's going to send a Savior to save his people. So he's fulfilling his promise to his people now. This is really good news. And then Mark wastes no time getting to his point. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and he quotes Isaiah and Malachi a little bit in here, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So why would he immediately, right after he starts this quote, the prophets? Well, if you've ever been in college or maybe even high school and you've written a term paper or a research paper, didn't you, used to, didn't you cite uh, some sort of expert text to give your paper some credibility with the person who's going to read it and grade it? Well, that's essentially what Mark is doing here. He's telling his audience you can count on this message because God said that it would happen. I'm quoting his prophets of old that, that, that there would be this herald, this 
this proclaimer of the man who is going to come, the Messiah who is going to come, and that would be Jesus, and the proclaimer of that, the herald of that, is John the Baptist. But even more, he says, he quotes this idea that he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And again, this, there's a lot of these shadowy references to the Old Testament in Mark, and here's another one. This is an Old Testament way to refer to God. When you read through the Old Testament, every time you see that big word Lord, it's a reference to Yahweh, it's God. And what he's saying is that you need to understand this about Jesus, the Messiah. He's not just the chosen one. He's not just a savior. He's not just a hero. He's not just a leader. Although he is all of those things for sure, but he's more than that. He is God in the flesh. And we also look at that and we're reminded of the the undeniable ability of God to prepare his way for anything. A little more than a year ago, Tyler Johnson, the lead pastor of Redemption, and myself and and, uh, Josh Prather and Sean Myers and a few others got together and we said, we really need a deacon board at Arcadia. No Redemption Church up until that time had had a deacon board. We were going to be the pilot deacon board. And some people were asking, well, why do we need a deacon board? We don't have anybody in the hospital. We don't have anybody who's, we don't have anybody who's homebound. Uh, we, don't, we, we don't have any real need for a deacon board, but we just felt God was impressing upon us the need for a deacon board. And so we went through a bunch of people and we ended up with a, forming a small deacon board of five or six people. And we started that at the beginning of last year in January, January 2014. And wouldn't you know it? Only a few weeks after we started this deacon board, guess what? We had people in the hospital. We had people who were homebound. We had people who were passing away. We had people who needed prayer in, in, a, in, a, in a heightened and special way. And suddenly there was this need. God had prepared the way for us as well. And we were reminded that, I say this all the time, God's timing is not only impeccable, but it's perfect. But we were reminded that, that God knows what he's doing. And he's going to prepare his people if his people will listen to him. And so this, this, is, this is really important for us to grasp. And then this next paragraph about John the Baptist. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this whole paragraph is really about the importance of baptism. Baptism is a demonstration that you have repented of your sin. It, It is that, but it's also more than that. But it reminds us that repentance of sin always precedes baptism. Baptism is an announcement of of a change in your identity. You are a new creation in Christ and that you are literally fully immersed with Christ for the rest of your life and that the Spirit comes and lives within you. It's a a demonstration of that reality. The, The Greek word baptizo literally means to completely dunk. And so we're fully immersed in this new life. And you say, why is he doing it in the Jordan River? Is that significant? And I would say yes. Again, shadows of the story of the Exodus by John doing this in the Jordan River. We all remember how Moses led them out of Egypt and they got through the Red Sea and then they walked around for 40 years in the wilderness grumbling. What what, what we often forget is that that story ends and a new story begins with them crossing the Jordan and going into Jericho. And, And so essentially what this is symbolizing is God is calling His people from the wilderness of sin out to be baptized in the Jordan River. And, and, and even the one who is doing the baptizing came from the wilderness. And, and we also see that God is clearly working here. All of these people are heading out to the Jordan to be baptized for the repentance of sin. Why would that be happening if God wasn't working? 2,000 years ago, today, human beings are all the same. We're pretty sure that we're fine without God. We've got this. If, if um, getting into heaven is kind of like the PGA cut, we're going to be in that top half, no problem. God is pleased with us. We don't really need anything. And yet people were going out. They recognized their need for God. They recognized their need for repentance. They recognized their need to be cleansed of their sin. And so they were going out. And as they were going out, John is saying, yes, this is important, but he's also pointing at someone else something else. He's pointing at the real Messiah who is to come. What about the way John was dressed and what he eats? A lot of people make a big deal out of this. I'm not so sure that we need to. 
Yes, you could say that there's some significance that John was a prophet in such, in some ways, and maybe it was the garb of, of a prophet and the food of a prophet. I, I don't know. I, I think that essentially, if you lived in the first century out in the wilderness, this is how you dressed and this is what you ate. I mean, there's no Nordstrom's out there, no Le Grand Orange out there. You're pretty much stuck with what you have. And some people would say, oh, he's just doing that to look different and, and attract attention. No, I think Mark is just describing who he was and where he was from at that time and in that place. I, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I think it'll help you understand. Let's say that this was happening in the 21st century and John came from Arcadia. It might say that he wore really tight pants and he had creative facial hair and he was eating kale salad and drinking kilt lifters. See, now you're connecting. You get this, okay? So it's just, this is who John the Baptist was. And he's coming out and, he, and, he's, and he's, and by the way, if you look, look it up, look up locusts. It's a really good source of nutrition and they're gluten-free and organic. So just remember that. So that's really that's really helpful. But then there comes this significance. What is the significance of the fact that he says, hey, don't look at me. Look at the one who's coming because the one who's coming is, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. What's that all about? Well, well again, in that hierarchy of, of the world in the first century Mediterranean culture, there was, there was a slave class. And even within the slave class, there was a hierarchy. And if you were at the very bottom of the slave class, you were the one that had to deal with the master's feet. Nobody wants to deal with feet. Nobody wants to deal with feet today, pretty much. You've got to pay a lot of money to do that kind of a thing, okay? But that was the lowest level that you could be in that, in that slave class was to be the one that dealt with the feet. And by the way, uh, Jews did not like feet at all anyway. And here's what John the Baptist, a Jew, is saying about Jesus. He's saying, listen, compared, uh, me compared to the Messiah... I'm not even worthy to be the lowest person on the totem pole. I'm not even worthy of that. And and so what he's doing is he's saying, I'm not the Messiah. Don't come out here and think I'm the Messiah, number one. And number two, he's saying, the one who is to come is really awesome. And you need to understand that. And I would say, by the way, imagine how connected to God John the Baptist had to be in order to be able to do this ministry and know the convictions of his faith in what he was doing. And this didn't happen overnight, my Arcadian brothers and sisters. And I just want to remind you that so many people want to come to the Bible and want to come to Christianity and want to come to Jesus. And and you want to say, what do I do about this? And I need to know right now. And Scripture has very few easy answers for life's questions. Instead, for the most part, what Scripture does is it tells us how to be a person of the type of character that can discern the wisdom and the will of God. But we're Western 21st century people and we don't like that because that means we're going to have to take time and it's going to be a journey and it's going to be a process and there's going to be prayer and learning and reading and community. But that's what Scripture says. And John had all of that for decades and then he was launched into his ministry. And then the last question would be, well, how how are the two baptisms different? It seems like there's two baptisms here. And I would say this, what John was doing was really important. Don't want to discount that, but it was merely symbolic. Jesus' baptism in the Holy Spirit is real. The Holy Spirit now resides in us with his baptism. And it constitutes this new life, this rebirth, this, this change. And, and we recognize that throughout, again, the Old Testament, God promises over and over and over that he's going he's to immerse his people. He would baptize his people in the Spirit. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel all record this promise. And so this is, again, the, the fulfillment of God's promise and then these last three verses in those days Jesus now comes on the scene from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan that's interesting Jesus didn't have any sin baptism is to demonstrate that you repented of your sin why was Jesus getting baptized we'll answer that question and when he came up out of the water immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven that said, you are my son, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So why did Jesus get baptized even though he was without sin? Well, he is identifying with his people who are sinners. He's saying, listen, I have come to save my people and to be with my people. And that wasn't even the toughest place where he identifies with sinners. The toughest place was eventually on the cross where he became our sin. How hard was that? That's the ultimate identification with us. 
I want you to think about this. Have you ever in your life, because of loyalty or principle, stood up and were willing to be identified with a person or a group of people and it cost you something in order to do that and you knew going in that it was going to cost you? Well, this is the ultimate in cost, that Jesus did this for us, that he was willing to, through baptism, be identified with us as sinners and it cost him his life, his execution, the crucifixion. So why wouldn't you be identified with him through baptism as well? And and then this dove thing. I think this is acutely important and we tend to race past this. What is the significance of like a dove, the Spirit came down? The dove is used in, the word dove is used in the Old Testament a few times, but it always indicates a bird, a dove. But there's also something called the Targum, which is uh, an ancient rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament law. It's rabbis who are commenting on what's going on in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 during the creation story, they reference the Spirit of God as the dove. And so Mark knows this. And so specifically what Mark is doing is he's taking us all the way back to the beginning with who Jesus is. Jesus is the creator and the author and the sustainer of everything. It's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, that he was before all things and that he created all things and that he is in all things and all things are held together by him. Mark is pointing us back to the very beginning to remind us that Jesus as Lord is the author of everything. And then as the author, that gives him the authority in our lives. And I want you to think about the practical logical implications of this. Some people come along and they say, you know, faith in Jesus isn't very practical or logical, and I would argue it is, because if this is true, and it is, that Jesus is the author of everything, that makes him the Lord of everything, and that means everything at your workplace, everything at school, everything in your family, everything in your neighborhood, everything you do, everything you are, everything, it's all his And when you begin to realize that, you you can take away these little moral codes and these causes and, 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 and you can have those things if you want them, but rather you have the gospel over them and Christ over them as Lord over them. And he's the Lord over your job and your work and how you do that. He's the Lord over your family and how you do family. And, and, and like in, in marriage, the ultimate purpose in marriage is not to be happy, but to become conformed to Christ so that you can have a good marriage. He becomes Lord of everything because he is the author of everything. And of course, we see the Trinity here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I know some of us struggle with the idea of the Trinity. Uh, I think Tim Keller has written something that's helpful uh, to help us understand it. He writes this. The doctrine of the Trinity is admittedly mysterious and cognitively challenging. The doctrine claims that God is One God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not tritheism with three gods who work in harmony. Neither is it unipersonalism, the notion that sometimes God takes one form and sometimes he takes another, but that these are simply different manifestations of one God. Instead, Trinitarianism holds that there is one God in three persons, and here's the key, who know and love one another. God is not more fundamentally one than three, and he's not more fundamentally three than one. And you see that description that they, they know and love one another. And you begin to realize that we are called to live in the same way with each other, the way the Trinity loves, lives with each other. And you always notice when, when there's two or three members of the Trinity operating together, there's that yieldedness that we talked about the last four weeks towards each other, that shyness towards each other, that submittedness towards each other. And what that means to us is, is we need to begin to imagine our lives if they were, if they were lived more similarly, similarly to the Trinity, that we would quit asking people to orbit around us as the center of everything, but rather we would humbly orbit around other people, loving them and empowering them and encouraging them and praying for them and helping them and training them and challenging them and comforting them. Here's what one commentator says about this. This is really helpful. The Trinity exhibits the opposite of what we as fallen people live. We live a life curved in on ourselves. 
That's, that's a, a reference, a shadowy reference to Martin Luther, the great reformer from hundreds of years ago, who said that essentially man's life is one that's curved in on himself. All we're concerned about is ourselves. We live a life curved in on ourselves, a self-centered, self-engrossed life. The Trinity lives a life of dynamic submission, service, and selflessness. A, life, a self-centered life is a stationary life. A self-centered life is static, not dynamic. A self-centered person wants to be the center around, every, uh, around which everything else is focused. Uh, a self-centered person might help other people or might have friends or might even fall in love as long as there's no compromise to their individual interests or whatever meets their needs. The self-centered person might even give to the poor as long as it makes him or her feel good about himself or herself and doesn't hinder their lifestyle. Self-centeredness makes everything and everyone else a means to their end. And that end, that non-negotiable, is whatever it is that that person wants and whatever interest they have over everyone else's. The self-centered person will have fun with people and they'll talk with people, but in the end, everything is about that self-centered person. And the Trinity shows us a different way by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, God looks at His Son and He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. This is awesome. I want you to think about this. Jesus hasn't done anything yet. And the Father looks at him and says, I'm well pleased. I'm pleased with him. Jesus has been a carpenter, but this is not, this is not after the crucifixion where God says, wow, that was really something. I'm really pleased with my son that he would go to the cross. He says this before Jesus has done anything else. And I want you to see this as a picture of how the Father looks at you and me. Do you understand that? There's nothing that you and I need to do to come to Christ, to make ourselves good enough to be with Christ, to build ourselves up, to become morally right with God. He is well pleased with us where we are. Now it's true, He doesn't leave us where we are. Part of the Christian faith is that He takes us and molds us into the image of Christ and that's an important journey. But He's pleased with us right now where we are. This is the essence of grace The definition of grace is unmerited favor. What can you do to merit unmerited favor? Not one stinking thing. This is how much we are loved. And this is how much we have been given this gift of life from Jesus Christ. This text is leading us somewhere. It's leading us right into the Gospel of Jesus. Mark starts with the gospel. He ends with the gospel. The gospel is from creation to new creation. It's a gospel life that embraces things like the idea that all of life is all for Jesus and that there are no little people and no little places and that we take God seriously but we don't take ourselves seriously and and, and that we have nothing to prove and no one to impress and that we live our lives in a naturally supernatural way by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Mark has two bents. Number one is to show that Jesus is the King. He is the author and the creator of everything, and that means that he deserves all glory, all honor, and all acclaim. And then the second thing is that it helps us to understand the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross was to save his people from their sin so that you and I could be reconciled to God, disciples of Christ, being sanctified and eventually glorified in him. Let me pray, and Cody's going to come and lead us into uh, our time of communion, and then we're going to baptize. God, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, for what you have done in our lives through Christ. God, help us to live with gratitude. Help us to live with the awareness that you love us enough to be pleased with us in who we are. And so, God, now I call on all of us to recognize and be grateful for who you are and what you've done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.